It's one of the deepest, richest, most important books of the Bible, Romans. In this message, join Pastor Chris Chadwick and learn more about what the Bible says in the book of Romans. Would you be seated, take your Bibles, turn to the book of Romans, chapter 7, Romans chapter 7, in your Bible, <coughs> sorry, in your Bibles this morning. We have been um, in the book of Romans, chapter 7, uh, for two weeks, and I really thought the whole chapter would take us two weeks. Uh, I thought I'd get the second section done today. This will be our second week. I'm going to tell you it's probably going to take us three or four weeks at least to get through this chapter. Now, let me be super honest with you, okay? Are you ready to look at me for just a minute? You're going to adult church today. This is not like shallow, come to feel good about yourself kind of sermon. That's next Sunday. I guarantee you that's Wednesday night. My dad, all all he does is tell you things you like to hear. Changed greatly since I left his house. Never said anything I like to hear when I lived with him. But now, that's all. No, Wednesday's going to be great. Thursday, Friday, great. Today, we are in deep. We're not in too deep, but we're in deep. Um, and uh, you're, you're going to adult church today. Um, we've been talking in Romans chapter 7, and just to give you some background, if you remember, in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul, really, the book of Romans is divided into uh, five sections, and 6, 7, and 8 is dealing with sanctification in the life of the believer. Matter of fact, I'm excited to preach out of 6, 7, and 8. If you remember, chapter 3, 4, and 5 was dealing with the subject of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, or that you're only saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's what I was talking about. Well, there were some in the church at Rome, the letter to whom Paul is writing in chapter 6, who said, well, if I'm saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, I can live however I want to live and all is good. Live and let live and I'll be fine. Uh, The seminal verse for that is found in verse number 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin, Romans 6, 1? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. That's the strongest negative word in the Greek language. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Paul says, no, you can't keep sinning to prove that you're saved. God forbid. Well, the church at Rome was divided probably, historians tell us, somewhere between 50-50 and 60-40 of Greeks and Romans. And it was probably, if it it went on one side or the other, probably more, not Greeks, but Gentiles and Romans or Jews. Uh, There was probably more Gentiles in the church than there were Jews because the Jews had been kicked out of Rome and recently just let back in. And so there was a bunch of Gentiles. Okay, well, if, if we're saved by grace, we'll just keep sinning. Well, there was a group of Jews in the church, a large number of groups in the Jews in the church who had grown up accustomed to the law. And the law was amazing and wonderful to them. Matter of fact, they they worshiped the law. And they thought that the law was so good that they tried to prove their worth by keeping the law. And Romans chapter 7 is really an entire message that says, number one, you're dead to the law. And number two, you can't keep the law. And number three, the whole point of the law is to prove to you, you can't keep the law. So stop trying. Because you can't do it. So today we're going to enter into um, maybe, maybe you have the privilege of being at the deepest message in the history of Canyon Ridge Baptist Church until this Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. But we're going to talk today about the condition of man. The condition of man. Now, we live in a world that is focused on self, don't we? Everybody kind of focused on self. Now, I'm not one for self-defeating statements. I think that sometimes people beat themselves up way too much. As a matter of fact, in a culture that is more and more focused on self, the result is not self-liberation, it's self-degradation. I spend an aggregate amount of time or a lot of my life now telling people, show yourself a little bit of grace. You're not supposed to be perfect. But we do live in a world that is focused on making themselves look good and sound good. I was doing some study research yesterday In other words, I Googled it, so 30 seconds, but I typed into Google, my favorite Bible study tool, 
I'm teasing. I'm teasing. I don't use, please don't ever use Google as a Bible study tool. Please don't. <laughs> Come see us. We'll help you uh, find some good resources. But um, I typed into Google positive affirmative statements to yourself. How to say positive affirmative statements to yourself. And, and a lot of stuff came up. But here was the, the number one website that came up. It said, say these statements to yourself every morning. Say these statements to yourself right when you get out of bed or before you get out of bed. Make these statements to yourself. Now, it's supposed to be in some degree, it's not supposed to be funny, but it's actually quite funny to me. And knowing that I'm talking right now, laughter would be helpful or we'll just go longer. So, be helpful. (laughs) Number one, I am successful. Say that before you get up. I am successful. Number two, I am confident. I am powerful. I am strong. I'm getting better and better every day. (laughs) It's funny when you think of the other statements, right? Like, oh, if you're successful, confident, powerful, and strong, how can you get better than that? But whatever. I wake up motivated. Let me just tell you right now, I've never woke up motivated. I woke up rolling out of my bed going, dear Lord, please return right now. Right now, sweet Jesus, come now. At any moment, I, could, I would appreciate that. How many of you have ever woken up begging the Lord for a coffee IV to be inserted into your veins? Yeah, that's me. Wake up motivated. I am an unstoppable force of nature. I am a living, breathing example of motivation. I'm just going to tell you, when I wake up in the morning, I am a living, breathing example of negativity and sadness. The other day, Debbie had a medical procedure, and I was driving her to the hospital, and she's a little nervous, so she's talking, and I reached over to her while she's talking. I mean, it's early in the morning, like 7.45. And I reached over, and I just grabbed her leg, which is our cue for please stop talking before I put this car into the barrier here. And she goes, I'm sorry, I'm just nervous. I'm like, please feel free to talk. I'm the living, breathing example of motivation. <laughs> Number 10, I'm living with abundance. I'm having a positive, inspiring impact on the people I come into contact with. I talked to some of you before church, that's not you. <laughs> I'm inspiring people through my work. But here's the one that got me that's related to this message. All I need is within me right now. All I need is within me right now. Now, again, I'm not for self-discouragement. I believe we have to take an honest view of ourselves, though, according to the scripture. And in verse number 14, it's very clear. There's some things that we know. For we know that the law is spiritual. And so Paul says what we know. It was a real simple outline. Now, it's imperative to remember that Paul is talking to a group of folks who thought they could follow God's law well enough to earn salvation. And then Paul has, has talked about obedience in chapter 6, but now he's talking about dying to the law in chapter 7 and that the law cannot produce life. And to answer their question before they answer it, or ask it rather, the apostle Paul says in verse number 14, we know that the law is spiritual. Now the word for here is another way of saying because. Paul is introducing a reason why he could say that sin, rather than the commandment, was responsible for the death of human beings. Now, go back to verse number 12 in Romans chapter 7. Wherefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. We dealt with that last week. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin might by the commandment, might become exceeding sinful. Because we know the law is spiritual, it's intuitive. We get it. We know this. Now, there's going to be a distinction here that you'll notice in verse 14 through verse number 18, and really through the end of the chapter. Paul is, in verse number 14, he uses 
the word we, first person plural. He's talking to the believers at Rome and he is including himself with them. He, he is saying, we know this. I'm one of you. No, no one is free from what we're talking about. Christian brothers and sisters, Paul's saying this, we know that the law is spiritual and through the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, you know that the law is spiritual. In other words, the law is not the problem. The law, God's good gift, appeals to the aspects of the inner person and it is, and it is sensitive to God's will. It deals with the, the, an inspection of the heart. See, the, the people to whom John was writing, they actually believed that they could perform well enough to make God happy. And Paul says, well, we know the law is spiritual. And, and he's, he's, he's setting them up kind of as a good attorney would set people up to draw the point home. Hey, listen, I, I've said, this is what Paul is saying, verse number 13. Uh, we know that sin works death in man uh, by that which is good and sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. And he's talked about, I didn't know in 7, 8, 9, 10. We, I didn't know sin, but by the law and, and sin revived and I died and my rebellious nature was exacerbated by the law. But don't forget this reality. This is what he's saying. The law is spiritual. It's good. Paul's being very clear here. The law is not the problem because the law is spiritual. There's one commentator who said, salvation by grace through faith does not replace or devalue the law because the law has never been the means of salvation. Some people were questioning that. The law reveals our need for a savior. The law reveals that you are a sinner. The law reveals that you are a sinner without hope, verse number 10. The law is the expression of God's will and nature. The law describes the will of God and tells man just what God is like. The law reveals both the mind and the nature of God. Law was given by God for mankind. And as we looked last week, though we are no longer bound by the law in any way. Let me rephrase that. We are not bound to the law in any way. Some people say, well, we're, we're bound to the moral implications of the law, but not the ceremonial. No, that's a Puritan idea that is not in line with Scripture. Paul says, if you're a Christian, you have become dead to the law. Well, then the question is, we ask, Pastor, can I violate the Ten Commandments? No, if you'll remember from last week that nine of the ten are reiterated in the New Testament, and the one we don't keep in any way is to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Go to church on Saturday. No, no, we don't do that anymore. We go to church on Sunday because of the command of the New Testament as the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we don't just go one time a week in the New Testament. We go every time the door is open. So the law does not, or the New Testament or the death of Christ on the cross does not erase the implication or the, the requirements of the law. The law takes the Ten Commandments and not only makes them behavioral, but makes them infuse or, or, or examines the heart of mankind while doing them. And we know this. That's what Paul says. We know the law is spiritual. But look at the rest of verse number 14. But I am carnal, sold unto sin. There's some things that we know, but there's some things that we have to understand. What I understand. Now, did you see there's a big shift here? I hope when you read the Bible, you look for these things. Don't look for spooky things that aren't there, but this one's clear. Verse number 14, we know the law is spiritual. First person plural, but know what Paul says. Notice what Paul says. But I am carnal. He moves from the first person plural to the first person singular. Paul, the arguably the greatest Christian who ever lived, arguably, you could say your grandmother was, and I won't argue with you. I didn't, maybe don't know her, but Paul wrote more books of the Bible than anybody else. He wrote more words in the New Testament than anyone other than Luke. 
As far as the scripture goes, he started more churches than anyone else in scripture. He passionately pursued the Lord and he moves from the plural we know to I am carnal. Now here's the application. It's really easy to recognize the sin of others. When Paul was talking about things that are known, he uses the plural we, first person plural, we. When Paul starts talking about sin, he uses the first person singular. In other words, he's saying, I'm not, I'm talking to you, but I'm talking about me. I am carnal. In other words, I'm not trying to inspect your sin and I'm not talking about this person over here or I'm not thinking about that person over there or somebody else out in the world. When it comes to, this is Paul, my walk with God and who I'm talking about, I'm talking about myself. And he says this, I'm carnal. Paul is our example to not allow arrogance to reign in our hearts. Well, let me tell you about their problem. Let me tell you about their sin. Let me tell you about how they messed up. No, no, Paul says this, I messed up. I'm carnal and I'm a sinner. And in our world that loves to deflect, I'm just letting it sit. I'm letting you think about it. We love to deflect. I I, I don't mind acknowledging that you're a sinner, but am I really a sinner? You say, are you making more of it than you should? No, 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 I'm probably not making enough of it. I am carnal. Well, what is carnal? Well, it has two meanings. Means conceived in the flesh, the physical aspects of the body of flesh and blood. It also means the flesh with which a man is inherits the nature from his parents, our our sinful nature. In a very negative way, the word means given up to the flesh. That is to live a fleshly, sensual life, to be given over to the animal appetites of the flesh. And when Paul says this, for I am carnal, in in context, what Paul is saying, I am, now he's not talking here yet, though he will in this text, he's not talking here about the animal appetites of the flesh, the, the sensual life. He's simply talking here about the reality that he is flesh. He has a physical body. You have a physical body. Now he's going to go on and talk about himself being a sinner, but he, he is talking here that I have flesh and I have, a, I have a physical body that has to be dealt with. And he is saying it this way. If we had time to go into all of the language, I would. But he is talking about this, I am of the flesh, not, and here's a distinction that's very, very important, not I am in the flesh. Well, what's the distinction? One is I have a physical body. I have flesh and blood just like you do. If you're here today without a physical body, please come see me after service. We need to pray for you. You have a physical body. I am of the flesh. I am not in the flesh. Well, what's the distinction? Romans chapter seven, verse number five. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. The phrase in the flesh or the idea or the concept of in the flesh in the Bible is a person who is lost without Christ. So Paul is saying, I'm a believer. I'm saved. I know Christ but I still have a fleshly body. I'm still of the flesh. It's just the struggle of mankind. The reason that you struggle is because of your flesh. But we don't only see mankind's struggle, we see mankind's sin. Look at verse number 14. The law is spiritual, I am carnal, sold under sin. Sold under, the word sold is used to refer to be sold into slavery in Matthew 18, 25. And Paul is saying what he said here in Romans chapter three, verse number nine, apart from Christ, we are all slaves to sin. 
Apart from Christ, we are all slaves to sin. It's your nature. You're under a sin nature. You're subject to sin. You're capable of sinning. You're guilty of sinning. You can't free yourself from uh, being short of God's glory. You can't keep from sinning, not perfectly, no matter how much you try. You can't erase sin's presence in your life, no matter uh, how much work you do. You can't cast sin out of your life, not totally. You can't get rid of sin, not permanently. It's in your life. You're sold under sin. And you're under sin if you're a believer or if if you're not a believer because you have a fleshly body. That's what he's saying. And then Paul in verse 15 to 17 makes some de- three declarations about the carnal life. Look at verse 15. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do not. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. The first declaration that Paul makes is found in verse number 15. The carnal life is a helpless, unending struggle. Welcome to Canyon Ridge. I hope you feel better about yourself today. The life that you live in the flesh is a helpless, unending struggle. Matter of fact, look at verse 15. Now, some of you are looking at me strangely, and I love that because it means you're thinking deeply, and I hope that you will keep thinking deeply. Don't turn me off till the end of the message. Notice verse number 15. For that which I do, I allow not. The word allow means to understand or get the meaning of something. A carnal man finds himself doing things he cannot understand. He can't understand why he's doing them. He fights, he struggles against them, but before he knows it, he has sinned and come short of God's glory yet again. Think about yourself for just a minute. Let's say, oh, let's pick one of the convenient Christian sins, all right? Let's say that you're lazy. Oh, amen. Amen. Nobody wants to amen that, but laziness is a sin. It's a sin. The Bible says, redeem the time for the days are evil. Make the most of time, whether you're a teenager or a senior saint, make the most of your time. Don't spend your entire life watching Andy Griffith or playing Fortnite. You'll stand before the Lord for every second that you use. So let's just say, I'm not preaching against laziness. Let's just pretend that, that you struggle with laziness. All right? So you determine, I'm not going to be lazy. I'm just not going to be lazy. So day one, you wake up, you're motivated and everything you need is inside you. And, and you're just fighting and fighting and working and working and fighting and fighting. I'm not going to be lazy. 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 And before long, something happened and you realize that you've spent four hours in front of the screen perusing Facebook to find retirement communities in Arizona. And you're only 23. And you're like, oh my word. That's what Paul says. The things that I do in verse number 14, or or, sorry, verse number 15, I allow not. I don't even understand what I'm doing. Doing this again. Why am I always lazy? Why do I always think these thoughts? Why am I always negative? Why am I always thinking about porn? Why am I always lusting? Why am I always talking and hurting people's feelings with my words? I've read every positive book on words I can find. And yet again, I find myself sinning again. That's what he says. I I don't even, I allow not. For that which I do, I do not understand. You know, I understand why I'm doing it. To argue that you're not doing it is foolish. Here I am, yet again, ticked off at my husband. And my marriage is on the rocks. And I, I hate this. Why am I back here at this same spot? 
the things that I do not or the things that I would not or, or for the things which I do, I allow not. What I'm doing, I don't even understand what I'm doing. Pastor, are you saying that God says that I don't understand what I'm doing? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to commit to going to church. I'm going to commit to being faithful to the Lord. And then three months later, I mean, I haven't even been to church in three months. What in the world? I don't know why I'm doing this. Growing up, if you see my mom here, let me just tell you that she had a surgery when I turned about 30. And she used to be about nine inches taller than she is right now. And she was an Olympic weightlifter. She weighed 325, 0% body fat. People say, where do you get your size? It's the German side of my family. I mean, I was smaller than my mom most of my life. She was a giant of a woman, and she had the bad attitude to go with it, and she didn't even understand why she was doing it most of the time. I get it. She was just a sinner. And um, there were more than a few times as a kid that that dear, sweet, gigantic woman, she worked as a prison guard, but they fired her because she was too mean, <sighs> that she would put me... You know, something would happen. I'm sure my brother or sister did something wrong. And she would come to me or I would do something wrong. And she would say something like this. Why did you do that? And then she would say this. For the life of me, Christopher, I cannot understand why you did this. I want to know. Why did you? I started the backyard on fire one time. Why did you light the backyard on fire? True story. It's a funny story, but I won't tell it for now because there's things my mom still doesn't know. Oh, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag yet. There was a cat in the bag. That was the problem. Um, if you know me, you know how much I don't love cats. And um, But there were times when I would say to my mom, I don't know. And she would go, with all the love and graciousness of a German mother, what do you mean you don't know why you did it? I just don't know. Well, <laughs> you better figure this out or we're going to call your father. And that's when I learned to lie. <sighs> For that which I do, I don't even understand. That's the condition of man. That's how deep-seated the sin issue. Oh yeah, pastor, for sinners. No, no, no. Paul's the apostle. He was saved. At this point, he's been persecuted for his faith greatly. And he's talking about himself. I don't even understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. Declaration number one. The carnal life is helpless in an unending struggle. I don't understand what I'm doing. Verse number 15, the second part, part B. For what I would that, I, that do I not. I don't do what I want to do. I want to do the right thing and I don't do it. Paul wanted to be conformed to the image of Christ. To become all that God wanted him to be. But despite his desire... And his expectation, before he knew it, he found himself yet again coming short of God's glory. I want to do the right thing. Why am I not doing it? Matter of fact, he escalates this. I don't understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. I don't want to do what I'm doing. As a matter of fact, I hate what I'm doing. But what I hate that I do. Paul hated sin. He hated coming short of God's glory. He struggled against failing and displeasing God. He hated everything that hurt and cut the heart of God. And he fought to erase this from his life, but no matter how much he fought, he hated and struggled. He found himself failing again and again. That's why he could say in Galatians 5, 17, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. I 
I used to think early on as a pastor that the reason we sin is because we were losers. And that if you just tried harder and worked harder, and there's probably a measure of truth to that for sure, and we would see that in other parts of the scripture to bring it all in total. But you have to understand the condition of man in the inner man. Sometimes you sin and you just hate it. Why am I doing this? I don't know why I'm doing this. This isn't what I want to do, but I find myself here again and again. The second statement Paul makes, the first statement he makes is the carnal life is a helpless and unending struggle. The second statement that he makes is the carnal life demonstrates that human nature and knowledge will never be enough. A carnal man fails to live as for God as he should, no matter how much he tries to please God and to conform to the image of Christ, he comes short. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter four, verse number 18, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. That's one of the reasons we need the law. The law tells us that we come short. The law tells us that despite all our efforts, we can't please God and that we're not acceptable to him by our behavior. You might know the law, you might even try to keep the law, but desire to know God and to seek his will will not save him because you'll always fall short. Our nature and knowledge will never be enough. They fail every single time. What we need is a savior. And that's what the law pushes us towards. The law, the Bible says in the book of Galatians, is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It's, it's kind of like our, our school bus driver that picks us up from where we are and drops us off at the feet of Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of the law. Matter of fact, verse number 16, for if then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. The word consent means to agree or to say the same thing as, just like you would consent to something. Okay, I agree with that statement. I consent to the law. It is good. The law proves and demonstrates that a, a man cannot live a perfectly righteous life. And a carnal man proves the very same thing. He sins, finding himself doing the exact thing the law says not to do. And what he himself prefers not to do. See, I don't, I, I don't know that a person who lives a life of sin for an extended period of time is really happy with that. Why? Because it brings death spiritually, emotionally, and ultimately physically. I was a youth pastor in Amarillo, Texas. Worked for my dad, and we our church was downtown. Our church building was at 514 West 8th Street. And uh, it was known for homelessness in our area. And I had the privilege of, of learning a lot about ministry by dealing with a lot of homeless folks. And most of them were homeless because of alcohol. There was some drug use. It's not like today the fentanyl epidemic is destroying our country. And, and you pray for people to make the right decisions about that. It's a, it's a, it's a horrific thing that is going on. And um, I remember one time talking to a guy and we were kind of engaged in an argument. He was arguing that I needed to give him some stuff and I don't remember what the entirety of the argument was. And then things calmed down and we began to talk and, and I began to just ask him questions. And he looked at me and he said this. He said, do you think I wanna be here? He said, I hate my life every single day. I hate this. I despise this. I would give anything to be able to change. This is what he said. So I did what they taught us in Bible college to do. Start quoting verses and giving him answers. And I'm a fixer by nature. Like if you have a problem, I'll help you fix it. Probably won't fix it for you, but I'll help you figure out how to do that. Because you can't, I mean, people have to do some of their own. And so I started giving him some answers. And he looked right at me. He goes, 
do you not think I know how to do this? He said, I understand how to fix my situation. He said, there's just something in me that every time I start to make that move, I find myself here all over again. Now, we want to say, oh, it's because he's weak, and if he would just be stronger and buck up and do it, then he'll figure it out. Or some people want to say, we just need to give him a hand up, and if we helped him, everything would be fine, provide housing for him and some counseling. No, the law proves that human nature and knowledge will never be enough. It can't be. That's what Paul says, and he's talking to believers, verse 16. If I do that which I would not, I consent to the law that it is good. Paul concludes in verse 17 and 18 that man has a sinful and depraved and corrupt nature. Now then it's no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform it, or how to perform that which is good I find not. The word will here, we're going to look at 18 and 17 so that we have the proper context. means to actively purpose, to desire. In other words, Paul says, I have the desire. The desire is present with me. I have the desire to do right right now. I don't want to sin. Now, there are some people that don't care. You have a rebellious heart. Let's just be honest. I know what God says to do, and I don't give a rip what God says. I'm going to do my own thing. I I don't think that's the majority of people, but there's definitely people with that heart here today. The great 30 service, the 1030 service, there's people with a rebellious heart here today. But I don't think that's the lion's share of people. I think that most of us would probably find ourselves along with the Apostle Paul to will is present with me. Paul consistently came short of the glory of God and failed to be conformed to the image of Christ. Why? Not because he failed to exercise his will, not because his mind wasn't focused on Christ, not because he didn't know God's will, not because he didn't seek to do God's will, not because he didn't call upon God with every faculty of his being. He came short of the glory of God because what verse 17 says, and that is the sin that dwells in him. See, it's easy to say in our Western way of thinking, well, the reason you're bitter and it's destroying your family is X, Y, and Z. And if you'll read your Bible more, pray more, go to church, write a journal, write down why you're bitter, start a fire and burn it up and then it's gone or write down what you struggle with and nail it to the cross, everything will suddenly be fine. No, those are techniques that last about as quickly as a diet in January. Well, pastor, do you think I need to read my Bible? We'll talk about that in a minute, but absolutely sure. 100%. But the reason you sin is because sin dwells in you. And Paul is making a very, very clear point to the people to whom he is speaking, the church at Rome. And that is, if you think you can earn your way to heaven, you need to wake up and understand that there's a 0% chance you'll ever earn your way to heaven. You can never be good enough to earn your way to heaven because sin dwells inside of you. He's not trying to be rude, and I'm certainly not trying to be rude. This is just what the word says. Though a carnal man finds a principle, a law of sin within the flesh that tugs and pulls him to sin. He finds that no matter what he does by living for himself before he lives for God and others, by putting himself before the law of God concerning uh, mankind, no matter what resources he uses, no matter how diligently he tries, he is unable to control sin and to keep from sinning. Because it dwells in him. (laughs) 
You were never made to be corruptible and die. You were never made to be indwelt by sin. But because of the fall, when Adam took of the fruit that his wife gave him, the Bible says in Romans 5.12, Wherefore, as by one man's sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for all of sin. Because Adam sinned, you're a sinner, and you not only sin, you now have a sin nature that will be with you for the rest of your life until you're with God in heaven. You remember in chapter 7, we dealt with the fact that we have victory over sin and we are not controlled by sin, but we are still influenced by sin. And the flesh that we have is still oftentimes attracted to it. And now we sin and we don't even know why we sin. Somebody, it's a common question that is asked and that is, Pastor, Will I ever come to a point in my life where I don't sin? And, and a lot of theological discussions happen on that and go back and forth. I'll be honest with you. There will never be a time in your life when you don't sin. You will struggle for life. Why? Verse number 17. Because sin dwells in you. It's inside of you. That's why those of you, I love the song that we say, saying that today, my worth is not in what I own not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of Christ at the cross. That's why some of you struggle so desperately with insecurity. You want everybody to think how amazing you are and how wonderful you are and everything needs to be perfect and everything needs to look good and everything needs to be just right. And if it doesn't, your life is a little bit out of kilter and, and if every word's not right and every thought's not right, and you're, you're looking for people who might say something negative and you're always on the prowl for, for somebody trying to get one over on you. Can I tell you why that is? Because sin dwells in you. We have an epidemic in America today of bitterness and insecurity. It's everywhere. Preachers, like, oh, how big's your church? People in the church, how big's your house? How much money did you spend on the air you put in your tires? You got special air? You don't have the Costco green cap air. You have the regular like black cap air. Oh, you got bad air. Insecurity. Oh, I'm not as big as him. I'm not as strong as him. I'm not as tall as him. I'm not as wise as him. I'm not as young as him. Sin that dwelleth in me. That's where it's at. Well, this is just how I am. No, that's the sin inside you. And here's the reality. Here's the point Paul is trying to drive home and will continue throughout this text. That is this. You'll never be good enough to earn salvation. Don't think that you will. You've got to deal with sin biblically. We're about to talk about that. But don't think you'll ever be free from the burden and bondage of sin. Michael Shermer, publisher of Skeptic Magazine, not a periodical we recommend by any means. And he's the author of the book, The Science of Good and Evil, not a book that I recommend. But he makes this statement. I once had the opportunity to ask Thomas Keneally, author of Schindler's List, what he thought the difference between Oscar Schindler, rescuer of the Jews, hero of the story, obviously a man who did great things. What's the difference between Schindler and Amon Goth, the Nazi commander at the Plazau concentration camp? And Keneally said his answer was revealing. And this is what he said. The difference between Schindler and Goth was very minimal. Matter of fact, if there hadn't been a war, he says, they might have been buddies and business partners, morally obtuse perhaps, but relatively harmless. What a difference, he goes on to say, what a difference a war makes, especially to the moral choices that lead to good and evil. Shermer, a skeptic, one who doesn't believe there's a God, or if there is, he can't be known, goes on to quote Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And he says this, if only there were evil people somewhere 
insidiously committing evil deeds. And it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Well, I'll be honest. I appreciate Alexander Schultz and Nietzsche in so many ways and appreciate the philosophy and the thoughts that he had about the evil that is persistent in all of our lives. I've read and listened to many of his periodicals, books, articles, stuff like that. Bring up that quote again, would you? Who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Let me be very candid with you. You can't destroy a piece of your own heart. The only way that you'll have victory over the evil in your own heart is by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the only way to deal with evil in this world is not by trying to train everybody. Listen to me. It is not trying to train everybody to be good. It's understanding that nobody can be good apart from the work of Jesus Christ in their heart and in their life. There is no forgiveness of sin apart from Christ. There is no good apart from God. And no one can ever make himself good. He might be morally uh, uh, fulfilled he might be morally helpful in our world, but when he stands before the King of kings and Lord of lords and is judged by the law, he will be found guilty because he tried to do it on his own. Matthew chapter 19 tells the story of a young man who goes to Jesus and he basically says this and he goes with an arrogant tone. And he goes to Jesus and he says this, uh, Master, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to be saved? And, and Jesus says to him, you gotta keep all the law and all the commandments. And the young man very arrogantly, proudly says, I have kept all of these from my youth. I've kept every commandment. I've had people say, well, he must have kept them because that's what the Bible says. No, John does, or Matthew isn't saying that. That's what he said. He did not keep the commandments. You say, why? Because all men are sinners and the Bible is very clear that he broke the commandments and if you're guilty of one, you're guilty of all. So dude broke every one of them. Just so you know. And Jesus looks at him and says, if you'll inherit eternal life, I want you to do this. Go take everything you have and sell it and give it to the poor. And the man walked away discouraged. The Bible says because he had, this is the Chadwick Street version, because he had a lot of money and a lot of stuff. And he loved his money more than he loved Jesus. You can never have a relationship with God based on your works. There are many in the church who thought, I've kept the law, so I'm good. No, 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 you're just like this young guy. I've done these things. I mean, come on, Chris, I'm at church today for crying out loud. Of course I'm good. I'm in the military, I have this career, I have that career, uh, I'm a first responder, I do all of these things, I'm a good father, I'm a good husband, of course I'm fine. No, you've violated the law. And the whole point of Romans chapter seven, listen to me clearly, is to say you've violated the law. And he's talking to Christians. The condition of man is that you're a law violator without hope. No, I help children. Nope, law violator. So what do I need to do, Pastor? Okay, I've got five things for you to take home. Six things for you to take home. Really, it's one for one group and five for another. So it's, it's a total of six, but five and one. If you're not saved, you'll never get saved by trying to be good. Come to Jesus today. Repent of your sin and come to Christ. You, listen, you know you're a sinner. You know you violated God's law. Nobody wakes up in the morning and goes, I'm good. 
God is 100% happy with me. No, you're a sinner. Get saved today. Trust Jesus today. Well, how do I do that? Well, let me tell you, it's easier than you think. Do I give money to the church? No. Do, do I help the homeless? No. Well, how do I get saved? By acknowledging that you're a sinner before God, asking Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, and God the Son, he is God, asking him to forgive you of your sin, and by faith alone, ask him to save you, trusting only him. Something like this, believing it in your heart. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And the best that I know how, I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I have violated your law. I ask you to forgive me. And in childlike faith, I accept you and you alone as my savior. Trusting your word to save me. Is that all I have to say? Well, those aren't magic words. It's not a magic answer, but it's something like that. You're a sinner. You need a savior. Only Jesus can save you. Trust him today. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. You're a sinner. You need a savior. Romans chapter seven. We're all sinners. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. That's what Paul says. I'm a sinner. Go on and read all the first person pronouns in in Romans chapter seven. I think that's all that are left. Our first person pronouns. First person singular, I should say, pronouns. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I violate it. I violate it. I don't understand. I don't understand. Why do I do what I do? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? I, 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 I. It's the proper way to look at self. I have violated your law and I need your grace in a masterful way. So if you're here and you don't know Christ, number one, get saved. Or number only, get saved. There's no number two. There's no number two. Get saved. If you're a Christian, here's your five things. Understand that you'll have to fight sin for the rest of your life. If you struggle with bitterness, you're gonna fight bitterness for the rest of your life. Well, when I want victory over this. You'll have that in heaven. But until then, it's going to be a fight for the rest of your life. For the rest of your life. It's like me and food. I don't eat badly, but boy, when I eat badly, I can blow up really quick. I can weigh a lot. I'm going to fight that for the rest of my life. There'll never be a point where I'm like, hey, let's just go have a dozen donuts. It'll have no effect on me. Youth pastor. You'll fight sin for the rest of your life. Accept it. You're not a loser for fighting sin for the rest of your life. You lose when you stop the fight. Well, pastor, when am I going to be free from struggling with porn? You're never going to be free from that. Doesn't give you the freedom to delve into it. No more than we have the freedom to delve into bitterness. But you have to fight it for the rest of your life. It's going to be a fight. You are in a battle for the rest of your life and the enemy doesn't quit, number one. Number two, you have to accept that you'll never succeed as a casual Christian. The reason that some of you always struggle spiritually is because you're casual about your walk with the Lord. You're in a spiritual battle and everything else is more important to you than the spiritual battle that you're in. I'm not saying there's not other important things, but there's nothing more important or as important as the spiritual battle that you're in. You have to accept the fact that you'll never succeed as a casual Christian. You're never gonna succeed just barely coming to church, just barely reading the word. Some of you, here's what happened. You're listening to secular music on your way in to church. You're gonna get in the car and listen to secular music home. You're gonna watch TV all day. You're not gonna come back to church tonight. You're gonna not come to the revival. And in six months from now, you're gonna say, I tried Jesus and it didn't work. No, you didn't try Jesus. You were just casual about it. You tried Jesus like I tried kombucha. And Jesus is way better than kombucha. <clears throat> Number three, you need a church family to encourage you and hold you accountable. And you need to hold others accountable. 
You need a church family to encourage you and hold you accountable. And you need to hold others accountable. I have people all the time, all the time say to me, Pastor, I try to, I want to, I want people to hold me accountable. Well, the reason they don't hold you accountable is because when they try to hold you accountable, you get mad at them. I don't want to hold anybody accountable that gets mad at me when I try to hold them accountable. Like, like, hey, that's like your 37th Big Mac this month. And it's only the second. What's going on? Well, what right do you have? Well, you asked me to talk to you about Big Macs. Well, I don't want to hear what you have to say. Well, you can only do that so long before you stop talking to a person about what to say. So then you're just like, hey, get extra sauce. Put double cheese on there. Throw some salt on there. End your life quickly. We want to see how this goes, Jello man. You need to, the church to encourage you, to hold you accountable, and you need to hold other people accountable. Well, I think I can do it, Pastor, on one service a week. Well, if that's the case, I'm not trying to be harsh here, but if that's the case, why does Jesus say be at church every time the doors open? You say, well, I don't know that I like that you say that. Well, don't take it up with me. Take it up with the author of Hebrews and then talk to the Holy Spirit about letting it be in the Bible. Because you're in a battle. You're in a battle. It's not a technique. It's not just coming to church, sit and leave, and now you suddenly have an endowment of special spiritual power. No, no. It's just the daily, day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, following Jesus, living for Jesus, being accountable. Because here, remember, Paul says in our text this morning, for what I do, I allow not. I don't even understand what I'm doing. That's one of the reasons we need church and preaching. Because we're convicted about things that are going on in our life that we don't even see, that we don't even understand. And the Holy Spirit uses the preached word of God to bring conviction about things that might not even be mentioned in the sermon, might not even be mentioned in song. But God begins to speak to you. And understanding comes and your life is transformed and, 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 and you're helped immensely by simply being in service that day. And some people say, well, I've been in service and I've not been helped. Well, I'll be honest with you, so have I. What is it doesn't devalue the need and I don't always know how much I've been helped. Dr. Flint in our church tells me to take vitamin D like 5,000 I-U-E-W-Zs of it. I don't even know what all that means. I just take 5,000 of them. Why? Because he said, can I be honest with you? I've never woke up in the morning going, man, I feel like I've got all the vitamin D I need. Wow. They was like, how you doing? Full of vitamin D. Vitamin D hasn't affected my life as far as I know at all. Now, If we were to go to an x-ray or an MRI and we would look before and after, I guarantee you, you would notice a difference. The fact that I don't see the difference doesn't mean that it's not immensely helpful for me. So what do I do? I take vitamin D and spirulina and fish oil. What else do I do? I eat red meat and rice. How do you feel about it? I want cheesecake. That's what I want, a lot of cheesecake. I like cheesecake. I like chocolate chip cookies that are good. I don't like those dry, crusty chocolate chip cookies. And by the way, some of you ladies need to repent of being stingy with the chocolate chips. It's a chocolate chip cookies. Some of you literally mean it thinks one chip. No, there's supposed to be a thousand chips and binder to hold the chocolate together. Can I get an amen in the house of God? You should have clapped on that one, by the way. Not the best point of the day, but a very valued biblical principle. The Bible says to share and share alike. It really doesn't say that. Oh, I didn't know that. It doesn't. It doesn't say that. Number four, be in every service because you're going to be in attacked all the time. This is why anniversary revival is so important. Well, I'm tired. I told the men in men's prayer this morning, sometimes serving Jesus, we just get tired. Most people, though, get tired because they stay up late watching TV. 
Your kids, they're narcs. They will tattle on you all day long. Hey, man, you doing all right? I'm exhausted. Why? Oh, we were up watching Murder, She Wrote till 3 a.m. Number one, you were watching Murder, She Wrote? Are you 90? <laughs> Number two, till 3 a.m.? I watched Murder, She Wrote to go to sleep. Oh, yeah, my mom loves it. Okay, great. You're tired because you're doing things that really aren't that important. This is why you need a revival. Because you're being attacked all the time. And it will greatly encourage you and edify your walk with God, probably in things you don't even know that you need. I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you, that's probably the case. So you need to commit right now. I'm just going to put my, my walk with Jesus first. And somebody's going to say, well, the children, it's not on their schedule. Would you sacrifice your children's schedule on the altar of Christ and let Jesus determine your kid's schedule, not Dr. Whoever? And your kids can probably miss that 30-minute window of sleep anyway. And the later they go to sleep, the later they wake up. And you pray every morning that they'll sleep later. So it's a win-win. Number five, you need a daily time of private worship. A time to pray, read the word, repent, and worship. And let God speak to you. There's some things we know. And some things we understand. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, get saved today. If you're a Christian here today, no doubt God has spoken to you like he's spoken to me as we've entered into this deeper passage. And our prayers that you'll be surrendered to the Lord during this time of reflection. Father, Thank you for listening. Hear more messages today at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time.